I don't know if you've had one of these experiences yet this, uh, this Christmas season, but I had one of those magical moments. Um, and it, it came kind of at an anti- unanticipated time. So I'm taking out the trash of all things, and it's late at night, and I'm just like, oh, i got to get the trash out so I don't forget again. And how many of you forget when to put the trash out? Anybody? Okay, I'm not the only one, so thank you. Um, so, so I'm taking the trash out. It's probably like 9.30 at night, and, and I get out there, throw it in. It's stinky, but I'm, I'm walking back into the house, and I just stop. And I, I look up in the sky, and it's a clear sky. Uh, the, the stars are just shining. There's a crescent moon. And then I'm hit with the smell of a fire. So someone's got a fire stoked in their fireplace. And I'm like, this is incredible. And then I realize it's absolutely silent right now. And I have absolutely no silence in my life. So it's, it stops you when you actually have silence, right? And I'm just sitting in this moment. And I was truly able just to stop and savor the splendor of that little snippet of time. And just to behold God and his glory through his creation. And just say, God, thank you for this small moment. This is incredible. This is amazing just to, to be alive and, and to have uh, just all the sensory overload of, of taking in life around me. It was incredible. It was absolutely captivating for me. And my heart and prayer for all of us is that in the midst of this season that can so easily become hectic and hard and distracting, that we would be able to pause long enough to focus and meditate on the things that would stir our hearts and our affections and to captivate us with what really matters. So I don't know what you have to do to slow down, to ponder things to where it actually gets to your heart and blows away your mind, but I would encourage you to do that. One of the things uh, my family and I have been doing is reading through that Advent devotional that we have. You can pick one up if you didn't get one last week. But we've been reading through it every night, either at uh, bedtime or over dinner. And really the first few days is all about the contrast of light and darkness. Uh, It's all about uh, light in the midst of darkness. And like those stars that I saw the other night, lights are always the most captivating on the backdrop of darkness, are they not? They're always most noticeable. It always catches your eye in the midst of a dark background. And really, that's what I believe that the spiritual condition of man apart from God is one of darkness. It's a bleak reality that the Bible paints of a picture of us without God. And yet Christmas brings the hope of light. Christmas shines the spotlight on hope. And it should captivate us anew. And so the main idea, if you have your notes there, is is kind of going off of last week as well, this idea of Christmas certainty. And the main idea today is the certainty of Christmas can captivate our hearts and confront our doubts in the uncertainty of life. And so for that, we're going to walk through the passage Jason read. So uh, we're in Luke 1. I'm going to read verse 26 and 27 again. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. All right, so I don't know about you, but when I first read a passage like this, I'm just thinking, oh, you're just kind of giving me the details and the people involved. But these details are packed with prophecy. 
And these first two verses illuminate for us prophecy that's being fulfilled all the way back in Genesis 3 at the fall of man, but also then 700 years previously to this passage in the book of Isaiah. And it's important for us to note that because uh, this is not just random facts. This is significant information that God has promised from, from many, many years past coming to fruition. So I want to start by looking at the significance of the setting. It says that uh, to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. All right. Why is this important? Well, Isaiah, back in the, the prophet Isaiah of the Old Testament, again, 700 years previously, this is what he said. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. All right, so this detail about this city was foretold that the way of the sea, that Galilee of the nations would be made glorious. What does that mean to be made glorious? It's from the region of Galilee through whom, where Jesus would grow up and where Jesus would start his public ministry. In essence, the message of hope and salvation would come forth through Galilee. Yes, it's a glorious place because it's the first place to announce salvation has come. God's promise is being fulfilled. And a few verses later in Isaiah 9, 6, we also learn more about this prophecy. It says, for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So now we learn that the Messiah is going to be a son. He's going to be a son who is given and he's going to have authority. It says the governments will rest on his shoulders. And we learn from his name that this is just no ordinary son. He will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. I don't know anybody else who's ever been given a label like that except for God himself. What a mystery. The Messiah would be God. But I think the thing I want to note here about this son that's promised 700 years previously is the name Prince of Peace. Because he would be the one to accomplish peace and to bring peace between God and man. We also see in the text a fulfillment of a, of a prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and he shall be called or be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here, here's a prophecy about the virgin birth. And if you're familiar with the Christmas story, that's something that is talked about often and rightfully so. The virgin birth is critical to Christian doctrine. It is a, it is a core doctrine that we must hold to because you and I all fall in the line of Adam. We've all inherited a sin nature and are corrupt from birth, and yet Jesus was not. He was born of the Virgin, born of God, as we will see. 
He was not born of the seed of man, but he was born of the seed of heaven. Which means Jesus had no corruption in himself. And he'd be able to go on to live a life of perfect worship and obedience to God. Which is so central to our hope and our salvation. Then in verse 27, we learn another piece of information about uh, who the Messiah would be and how he would come into the world. It says that we see Joseph is the one who is betrothed to Mary. And Joseph is from the house of David. This is another prophecy back in 2 Samuel that uh, the, the Messiah would reign on the throne of David forever. And so uh, it's, it's important for us to understand some context here because for us, we're not really familiar with this term betrothal. Uh, our closest equivalent is engagement, but engagements are broke off all the time. Back in the day, a betrothal was a legal marriage. You were legally married to that person in the betrothal phase. And to separate was equivalent to getting a divorce back in that time. Well, why is this important? Because a promised Messiah would come through the line of David, who Joseph was a part of. And now Mary is married, Mary is married, to Joseph. And she is legally a part of the line of David through him. See, these two verses that we would initially just gloss over really quick are packed with significant information and details that we were already told through previous passages and texts and books written by God of how the Savior would come into the world. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is amazing what is going on here. And then we're going to see the angel make a proclamation. Verse 28. He came to her, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I don't know about you, but I, I would be excited to deliver a message like this to somebody. Would you? It's like, hey, if God said, hey, go tell this person that they found favor in God's eyes. You'd be like, sweet. I want to be a part of this. What's going on here? So Gabriel's obviously excited to share this good news uh, with Mary, but maybe he forgets that like he's an angelic being. And we as human beings don't have angelic beings speak to us on a regular basis. <laughs> Because we see in verse 29, Mary's response, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Okay, I don't care who you are. When you encounter an angel, first of all, you're going to be troubled in some way, at least confused. You're like, what is happening? You know, what in the world is going on here? So, so you're going to be troubled and you're going to try to figure it out. And what we see here is that Mary was uncertain in this moment of what was going on and why she had been chosen. And if she's not already in shock from this greeting, we see the angel continues. He, he discerns that maybe she's a little uh, uneasy because he's an angel. And verse 30 says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Like, oh, OK, now I feel better. Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay, I got that. You said that the first time, but you're repeating it because maybe I'm not getting it. Then he goes on. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. <laughs> it's just like. Let me overwhelm you with a greeting, and now let me just pile it on. 
All right, Mary, here's the deal. You found favor with God. He's with you. You're going to get pregnant supernaturally by the hand of God. You're going to bear a son. His name's going to be the most high. He's going to reign on the throne of David forever. Isn't this awesome? <laughs> Mary's just like circuits blown. What is going on? This is crazy. And I believe that while Mary is perplexed, and any of us would be perplexed if we were in this situation, I believe she has an inkling of what the angel is talking about. See, Mary has grown up in the Jewish culture. They were committed to the word of God. She knew the word of God. She knew the promise of a Messiah. And even though she doesn't have a full understanding of all the implications of what the angel is saying in this moment, I do believe she knows the promises of God and the hope of Israel. So there's something in her that's saying, yes, this is real. Yes, this is radical, but it can be true. And then we see Mary answer or ask a question of the angel in verse 34. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? How is this going to happen? I think Mary here is pondering honestly. She's being honest. How in the world is this going to happen? See, Mary's uncertain in this moment of how God would accomplish this promise. She doesn't know how this is going to be possible. And last week we saw uh, Zechariah get a message from an angel and he responded with doubt. He didn't believe. I don't think that's what's going on here with Mary. I think she believes what the angel is saying. She just has a genuine um, seeking after, well, how's this going to happen? She's thinking to herself, uh, I know about the birds and the bees. I know how people get pregnant. I've never been with a man. And so she's just being honest. She's just asking the angel an honest question. How is this going to happen? I don't want to pause there just for a minute, church family, and think about that God is not afraid or overwhelmed by our honest questions. God does not get afraid and he is not overwhelmed by our honest questions, even if the questions we ask are laced with doubts and fears. What our God is interested in is our authentic relationship with him. He wants us to come before him honestly. He wants us to use our brains and to think and to communicate with him and to ask those questions that we all wrestle with. And one thing I love about this church is this is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to be in process, to not have to have it all figured out. Because you know what? Life blindsides all of us in different ways. And we all wrestle through different questions, even as we're reading scripture. Well, help me understand this. None of us have all the answers. None of us get it all. We're all in process. But you know what I love about people who ask questions? It shows me that they actually are paying attention. You can't read about the eternal God of the universe and how he interacts in our lives and not have questions. And if you just if you don't have questions, I'd probably think, you probably really don't care. You probably really aren't thinking about the realities of life and faith and things that matter in the spiritual realm. So if you're newer with us, just I just want to encourage you. This is a place to ask real and honest questions. We want to process. We want to examine God's word together. And again, we may not have all the answers, and that's okay. I love that God gives us encouragement even when we don't understand Philippians 4, 6 through 7. 
It says, do not be anxious about anything. It's like, oh, that's easy. Not. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here we learn that part of the antidote to our anxiety is honest prayer before God. And he says, hey, if you're anxious, come to me. Pray, be honest, get real, let's talk. That's what God desires of us who are in real relationship with him through his son. Just let me know what's on your heart. Let me know what's on your mind. Just come to me. And I love the answer here is that God doesn't say pray and you're going to get an answer every time. That's not what he says. He says pray and my peace that surpasses your understanding can guard your heart and mind. You may not get the answer you ever are looking for as to why this happened or why that happened. But God can give you his supernatural peace as you come to him, as you are honest with him. And as you walk with him, God wants our honesty, both in our questions and in our prayers. And I think that's what Mary is doing here with the angel. She's not doubting, she's inquiring. And in this moment, she gets a very clear answer, but still a pretty incredible one. Verse 35 says, the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, you are going to be supernaturally impregnated from the seed of heaven, the Holy Spirit. And this son of yours will therefore be called holy. Again, this is so significant because he would not inherit the sin nature that is common to you and I and all of mankind. He would be pure from the womb. He would be holy And Jesus had to be sinless in order to be a sacrifice for our sin. The Holy One had to go to the cross to die in our place because we are the unholy ones. We need someone to step in our place to take the penalty of our sin to bring us back to God. And that's exactly why Jesus coming is good news of great joy because that is what he did. He came when we were estranged from our God. God sent his son so that we might be reconciled to him. That's who this child would be. And I love that Gabriel goes on to give Mary a piece of information. I think she would have found really reassuring. And we'll see the passage next week in her meeting with Elizabeth. But but Gabriel says, uh, Elizabeth, your relative, is also pregnant. And you know she was called barren. You know she's past childbirth age. In other words, she's been through menopause. It's impossible for her to get pregnant. And yet she's pregnant. She's also carrying a son. And she'll go on to find that out. 
But the angel's conclusion in verse 37 is what I want to draw our attention to today. And it's the angel's words that for nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, Mary, you can be certain that whatever God has spoken, whatever God has promised, it will come to pass. God always does what he says, no matter how hard that may be for the human mind to comprehend or fathom. Nothing is impossible with the God of all creation. Thinking about the fact that God spoke life into existence. And here God is going to miraculously cause Mary to become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is impossible with God. And I love Mary's response, and I think it's a huge lesson for us today. Verse 38, Mary just says this, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I love that. Mary acknowledges, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. Let it be. She desires to do God's will and to walk in this truth if it is true. And at this point in time, by what Mary says, I believe she is now certain that this message truly is from God. And thus she accepts the words as reality. To me, this is an incredible act of humility and an incredible demonstration of faith. This was not that long of an encounter. It's not like, hey, Mary, go take some time and think about what I've said and then come back and we can talk more about it. No, this is what God says. You've been shown favor. God's with you. This is what's going to happen. She's like, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to what you said. I want to do God's will. Church family, I believe this is God's heart and desire for all of us today. Each of us has a different story. We have different challenges. We have different callings. We have different giftings. But all of us, if we are followers of Jesus, should make this same declaration on a daily basis. To wake up each day grateful that we have breath, but to say, I'm a servant of the Lord. And Lord, I'm going to follow you in whatever you ask me to do. I want this heart. I want the heart of Mary in this passage, a humble, submissive heart to the will of God for my life that's willing to do anything that he would ask me to do because he is Lord and he is Savior and he is King. And I love that this is how Jesus would go on to instruct his disciples in how to pray in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer where he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. That should be our prayer before the Lord every day. God, this isn't about me and my kingdom. This is about you and your kingdom. And let my short life be lived under the leading and the will of my God. But you know, as I was thinking about this, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, we know we should do that. <laughs> that's, that's the should be of the Christian life, Right? But I think the only way that this becomes an honest prayer for any of us is if we are truly captivated by who our God is. If we are truly overwhelmed at the reality of our salvation that we have in Christ. Will we come to a place of joyful surrender to whatever God may have for our lives? 
I was thinking about that song that has the line says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Has that been anyone's prayer or has that been anyone's reality in this room? All of us. All of us have been prone to wander. All of us have been prone to say, uh, maybe I want to lead my own life. Maybe I don't want you to be Lord anymore. Everything around us in this world is vying for our attention and our affections. And oftentimes, I think the greatest battle of faith for us is to keep our minds and hearts in awe of the love of God. To believe that God loves us, that he is for us, and that anything he would ask of us is for our good and for his glory. And that you and I, as followers of Jesus, get to be a part of this crazy, awesome, redemptive story that is unfolding before our very eyes. I think through our passage, we see the certainty of God's love on full display in multiple ways that if we pause and think about it, truly do stir awe and wonder in our hearts. The promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden that he would send one to crush the head of the serpent, well, that one has come. The prophecy foretold 700 years prior to this event by Isaiah that light would come and shine into the darkness of the world bringing hope and salvation, it's happening here. The mystery that the creator of the world would put on flesh and become a part of his creation to dwell among us and to draw a wayward people back to himself. It's happening here. The Christmas story can captivate us anew if we think about the magnitude of these things. And if we allow the eternal truth to capture us more than the temporal trinkets that we're tempted to chase after this time of year. Are we thinking more of the eternal glory of our king than we are of what's going to be under the Christmas tree? Gosh, I hope so. And I think as we look at a passage like this and we look back to see that God was faithful then in fulfilling his promises to send his son, we can be just as certain that God will be faithful to his promise that Christ is coming again. He came the first time to deal with sin. He's coming again to bring us home, to be in glory with him, as Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 says. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, that's what he did the first time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We will die. That is certain. Christ will either come back in our lifetime or we will face the grave. And when we die, we will all stand before God and give an account for our lives. That is certain. And on that day, we have one plea for hope. And it has nothing to do with us. And everything to do with what this baby who was born into the world would accomplish for us. In going to the cross. In taking the wrath of God upon himself 
and through rising again three days later, giving us hope and a future. And this Advent season, Advent means anticipation. Yes, we're looking at how uh, the birth of Christ was anticipated, but just as important, if not more importantly, we are anticipating that he is coming again. And there should be nothing in the life of the Christian that fills us with greater anticipation and expectation than this reality. Jesus is coming again. And all we know from Scripture is that's soon. He's coming soon. And if you are in Christ, you should be looking forward to that day with great hope and great joy. And if anyone is tempted to ask the question, how can this be? Verse 37 answers it for us. With God, nothing is impossible. Will you pray with me?